The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, g'day and welcome to a midweek podcast. We haven't done one of these for a while. Uh, however, if you're a part of our church family or maybe you're a part of the community that listen to us online, uh, we've been going through a series at church called Mr. and Mrs. And this past Sunday we did a Q&A, uh, but there are too many questions to get through in the amount of time. So for everyone who sent through a question, thank you. Uh, really appreciate those questions. There were some really good questions in there. Uh, and I'm going to try and answer the remaining uh, lot of questions within about 30 minutes for you. So I hope that this is somewhat uh, helpful. Um, so why don't we go straight into it and dig into it. Um, question number one, as a husband, our role is to provide for our family to the best of our ability, which usually leans heavily to the financial. What would your advice be to someone who may be in a job environment that's affecting them negatively or bringing strain to the family, but is providing financially well for them uh, to basically be able to survive? Uh, great question. Firstly, I just um, I just want to first affirm anyone that uh, is willing to sacrifice the the job satisfaction uh, in order to provide for their family. Uh, whether you're um, a, a dual parent family, whether you're a single parent family, uh, that is something that God sees. That that is honourable. Uh, that is good. And in many instances, it, it's it's right. It's part of sacrificing in order to love and serve our, uh, our family. Um, yeah, so I, I, I want to start there. If that's you, um, as hard as that may be for you as negative, you know, if this is your particular situation, if you're feeling negative or it's uh, difficult for you, uh, but you're providing for your family, that, that's a good thing. However, with that, what I would say is I think we need to consider uh, what it means for a husband to provide for the family. Uh, I think for my, my parents' generation, uh, the baby boomer generation particularly, um, the, the understanding was of a father slash husband um, to provide for their family was only, only really thought through in the lens of the financial, to put food on the table, a uh, roof over the head, and, and that was a good thing. Again, that's a good thing. Um, and in many instances, uh, many of our parents... Um, just worked hard to do as much as they could to provide for us, particularly coming out of that particular context and time. Uh, we're extremely wealthy um, right now, and we're very unaware of what our previous generations have done to get us to this point where uh, many of us can, can rent pretty easily, can, can buy a home, um, get a mortgage. Uh, many of them couldn't back in the day. However, in that, what, what was lacking, I think, uh, was a broader understanding of provision. That the Bible brings. I think the Bible uh, doesn't just encourage uh, husbands, fathers, or, or parents to provide for the family financially, uh, but rather that, yes, financial, but as well spiritual, e- emotionally, uh, intellectually, relationally. Um, as a husband to my wife and as a, a father to my children, um, I need to think through uh, what it means in a more holistic sense to provide for my family. And so there, I think there are times when, uh, as a parent, you can just stay in a job that you don't enjoy um, because you're trying to provide financially for your family, but at the same time, because of the strain, uh, the emotional negative effects that are happening in that job, um, that's now leading you to come home and you're not in a good place emotionally, mentally, spiritually, 
Um, it's having a different effect and now it's leading you to not provide something that you should be providing for your family. So I would say if you're in that situation, um, keep providing financially because the last thing you want to do is take food off the table for your children um, or not have a roof over your heads. Um, but do so with this prayerful uh, anticipation, exploration of how can I get myself into a job and into a workplace environment, which is, which is actually going to help me provide better spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally for my family. Um, I've had this with, with many men in particular. I've experienced this more with, with, with men than I have with women, but their sense of this is all I can do, this is all I know, and so I'm going to stay here, but I'm miserable and I hate it. And I've tried to encourage men of um, think through things that you like and things you enjoy. So I'll give you one example of a guy who, not a Christian, but uh, a friend of someone in our church, uh, met up with them. He was miserable, really struggling with mental health stuff. And a big part of that was his workplace environment. So I asked him, what do you enjoy doing? One of the things he said, he said, one of the things I love to do is I just love to be in the garden. I love to mow the lawn. I love to pull out weeds. And so I said to him, well, have you ever thought about maybe something in the world of landscaping or, or something like that? And he, his first response was, well, no, how, how could I ever get to that point where I'd go back and start a new trade? And, um, and I just said, well, you don't have to do it tomorrow. But what if within five years you've made the move? What if we work together and we sort of explore what you would need to do, um, how much money you could save um, in this particular job? What, what are some ways in which we can move you towards something that you actually enjoy more? And within about, I think it was about three or four years, he actually moved jobs out of where he was, went into this landscaping world. Uh, and last time I saw him was a few years ago and he was actually really enjoying it. And he was much happier, much healthier, uh, sort of internally as a person. So I think uh, if you're a husband and you are providing for your family financially, that's awesome. It's a great honorable thing. Continue to do that, but also consider other ways that you could do that, which in the future, can actually help you to provide mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually uh, as well. So it's a really, really great question. Uh, it's a difficult thing to, to go through, but um, yeah. Next question. When the Bible says to leave the mother and father and cleave to the wife, leaving the parent is often de-emphasized. How does this practically work out in terms of obligation, even perceived, to our parents? How do you practically do this while still honoring them? Uh, we spoke a fair bit about this uh, two weeks ago when Carly, my wife, and I um, just did a bit of a sit-down conversation um, around uh, marriage and, and leaving your father and mother. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast from two Sundays ago. Um, however, I'll just kind of touch on a few things. I think it is a really, really important thing. The Bible clearly says that the man shall leave his father and mother. That word leave there means more than geographically. It's the sense of um, think of like a, a clean slate. It's like, okay, I'm going to leave this um, this particular family home, this family unit, and I'm going to start something brand new with a clean slate with a new reference point. The reference point not being primarily my mum and dad or my home life experience, but the Bible, the Word of God. Um, the scriptures are now going to be our husband and wife is going to be our launching pad. It's going to be our reference point. So we are no longer going to ask questions, um, answer questions with how we do things based on, well, that's how I was brought up, or that's what mum and dad did, but actually this is how the scriptures say it. And it's, it's a difficult thing to do. 
Um, it's, it's where a lot of our conflict comes in our marriage because we don't actually do that well. We don't come in empty, which is kind of what I think that word means there, to leave. It's the sense of we're not coming in full with all of these preconceived ideas and how things are. We're coming in empty and we're starting again from scratch with the scriptures. I think it's super important. Um, and that does mean we need to have conversations with our parents or our in-laws. Um, and we need to do that in a way which is honoring. Sometimes we're going to have difficult conversations and Carly and I had to do this where uh, we had to sort of say, well, we can't come to all of these things. We can't see you this many times a month. We had to set some boundaries that we felt were good for our, uh, our marriage and the starting place for us. Um, and so we did that. Um, we tried to use language as much as we could to say, hey, we love you. We want a relationship with you. However, we have a new priority and we need to prioritize this uh, because this is a new priority of relationships. Mum and dad are no longer the primary. Uh, the husband or the wife is now the primary. So um, go back and listen to that. I think Carly had some good wisdom there because she had to probably do this a little bit more than I did. Um, but I, yeah, I think you need to set clear expectations early on. If you can talk about you know, what you think open home, closed home, how many times do we meet and talk, uh, what do Christmases look like, what do birthdays look like, how often are we going to be seeing each other, all those sorts of things. Um, for those of you who aren't married, and are going to walk towards marriage. You want to do that in your premarital and think through that stuff and have conversations early. For those of us who didn't do that, uh, we need to start thinking through. Um, and probably one other thing I would say is, I think what we did was Carly would speak to her family, I would speak to mine. Uh, I wouldn't come and speak to the in-laws, nor would she, about certain things if we could. So I would take sort of the responsibility of having the difficult conversations with my parents if that needed to happen, and Carly would, would do that. That way we're not sort of crossing over and feeling like there's uh, a whole lot of dishonor coming from uh, the, the in-law. I think that's helpful. Uh, next question. Does a wife need to try and submit to her husband only in action, with resentment in her heart, or does she need to submit from... The heart. Really good question. Um, I think if we go to Ephesians 5 again, which was probably where this is coming from. Uh, let me get there. Uh, I think it's important to remember the place from which Jesus tells us to do things. Um, so Paul is writing to the church. He says this in, in verse 20, 22. Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think, I think this is important to restate because what Paul does here is Paul says, hey, listen, the reason, the reason that we do these things are not because they're easy, not because we love to do them, but because we love the Lord. So a wife needs to submit to her husband because she submits to the Lord. Uh, a husband needs to lay down his life for his wife because that's what the Lord did for him. Um, and so Paul points us back to, hey, listen, the motivation behind these things doesn't start with necessarily it being in our heart towards that person, but actually it's in our heart towards our God, our great God. So I think if we were to say, well, does, does a wife need to submit to the Lord in action only with resentment in her heart? We would say clearly no. Uh, we want to follow Jesus, we want to submit to Jesus, not just in action, but also in our heart. That's super important. Uh, I, I don't want to just love my wife in action. I want to love my wife with my heart. Uh, I think that's important. However, what I will say is sometimes the action comes first. Um, if you wait till your heart is there, often there are many things you won't do. And so I think for me, if I flip this a little bit and sort of tell my side of the story, um, I, I struggle to serve 
Carly with my heart. I was doing actions, but I was grumbling. Uh, uh, but over time, as I kept I knowing that I wanted to do this for God and I was being obedient to the Lord and I wanted it to be in my heart, I wanted to enjoy serving Carly and vice versa. She wanted to enjoy submitting to me. We started in action, but we just didn't stay with action. We prayed. We asked God, God, give us your heart for this. So if you are a wife uh, and you're struggling to um, submit. Now remember what that word submit there, it's hupatasso. It's this voluntary act of coming under your husband to edify him and lift him up, right? So it's not this top down, it's not enforced, uh, it's not this subjugation, um, it's this voluntary act of a wife that says, hey, I want to come behind you, I want to come underneath you, I want to come beside you and encourage you uh, to be the, the man of God that you have been called to be. And so I think there are, there are actions that you can do that would help your particular husband. Ask him what those are. And that if you're struggling with that in your heart, then as you're trying to do those actions, pray. Ask God. Ask the Spirit of God to give you his heart. Um, because once it's in your heart, it does become a lot easier. Um, so that's what I would say. I, I think the question there, does a wife need to try and submit to a husband only in action? No. She needs to try and submit uh, in her heart and find, find it a joyful thing to love and encourage and lift up um, her man as best she can. But great question. Uh, definitely not easy to do. Our disposition is not to do this. Our disposition is not to love, not to respect, not to serve, not to come under and lift up, but the husband and the wife, we're both called to do this. And so we need God's help to do that. And I can tell you this, it will come, it can come. And when it does, it's a beautiful thing. Next question, uh, what is the modern day equivalent of Sherah showing Abraham respect by calling him Lord? Uh, this is 1 Peter 3, uh, a little bit of context there. Um, Peter is writing to a church which is scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, experiencing uh, great persecution, and he's uh, encouraging them to hold fast to God and to keep uh, pursuing godliness and character and being living distinct lives within their culture and community. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, women were, were viewed as basically objects of beauty externally only. Uh, that was their only piece of value, really, that they were seen to have shown other than bearing children. And so it was a, it was a very, very difficult context for a woman um, to live in. And as the Christian gospel is coming to the Greco-Roman world, uh, Women are learning that they are equal in value, dignity, and worth with their husband, uh, that their voices matter, that their, uh, their character mattered, that they were beautiful, not only the outside, but the inside, that they were, they were worth so much more than just, not less than, but there is a sense of more than just being someone who could um, bear a child to some man who would then go and have multiple wives. Um, and so what's happening, particularly in this context, is as many women are learning and hearing about this great gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're feeling and experiencing their value, their dignity, their worth, um, even some sense of their freedom in Christ. Um, what Peter wants to do is go, hey, but don't use that freedom to no longer serve and love and encourage uh, your men. And so um, I, I think it's Galatians where it tells us that our, our freedom in Christ is we're, we're freed to serve, we're freed to love. Um, and so what he says here in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a Gentile and quiet spirit. 
So there's that sense of don't just be, don't just see yourself as only having value by being beautiful on the outside, which is nothing wrong with caring about and, and valuing, but, but equally value the inside, right? This is uh, precious, it says, in God's sight is very precious, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So he's now pointing back to Old Testament uh, women who are heroes of the faith and saying, these are how the women of old they were not just beautiful on the outside, they were beautiful on the inside. They adorned themselves uh, with their faith, with their hope in God. And it says, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the example that Peter gives is this example of Sarah. And the reference here is when she calls him Lord. Now, there's only one reference in the Old Testament to that, and that's this, uh, I think it's Genesis 18, Genesis 18, 20, somewhere around there, uh, where basically uh, Abraham has been given the call um, of God that he's going to be a father of many nations. He's been given the promise that he's going to have uh, a child. But remember, Abraham and Sarah are really, really old. So as Sarah is learning about this and hearing about this, she actually struggles to believe. She is not necessarily hoping in God. She is not necessarily adorning herself with faith. And so she's in this wrestle, this time of like, well, we, how, we, how is this possible? We're old. We're ancient. The, the time has passed for us um, to have children. And as we know, it takes years. It takes 20-something years before they uh, go on and actually have uh, this promised child. But in that wrestle, in her struggle to hope in the Lord, to believe God's promises, she still uses language that shows respect to Abraham as being the one, I guess, who's the head of the home. And so I think the reference, like what is the modern-day equivalent? I'm not really sure that we have one. I think the, uh, the, the sort of New Testament word would more be head, ultimate word might be Lord. It's that sense of leadership, headship. Uh, he's the one who's been given the, the promise from God and he's trying to encourage her and lead her to trust God and believe God. She's struggling with that, yet in her struggle, she still shows him some sort of respect. So what is the modern day equivalent uh, of, of Sarah showing Abraham respect by calling him Lord? I don't know if there's a particular word. I just don't think we have a modern equivalent that would that would work. Uh, but a principally, I think it is finding ways to encourage your husband. Um, so if um, if your husband is trying to lead spiritually um, and you're doubting some of those things, it might be just coming behind him and saying, hey, all right, if this is where we're going, um, let's do it. I know for Carly, sometimes it's been when I've prayed with the kids and done devotions with the kids and she's wanted me to do that more rather than sort of, I guess, nagging me and putting me down that I'm not doing it more, when I did do it, she would just affirm it and say, hey, I love it when you do that. It, it's so healthy for our kids. It's so good. I appreciate it. Um, and that would really help me. So that's probably what I'd say. I don't think there is a modern day equivalent. Um, I would say um, find a way, if, if, you're, if you're a wife, find a way of just having a conversation with your husband as to what helps him feel backed by you. Um, next question. I've heard it said that sex before marriage is wrong. Why is it wrong? What are the benefits of waiting till you are married? Uh, good question. Um, you've heard it said that sex before marriage is wrong. This, this might imply to me that maybe you haven't been around church uh, for a super long time, or maybe you have, but you've just heard it said you actually haven't seen uh, where this is really, really found uh, in the Bible. Um, a couple of things I said last week. One, I think it's really important that we are careful on how 
we associate sex with the word wrong or bad. Um, I think that the word here that's important is before, um, which is kind of highlighting this is a, a where is, uh, not where is the line, but when is the time. Um, I think that's really important because what we don't want to do um, is constantly use negative, gross, wrong language around sex, which then builds up a view of sex as being something that should be uh, avoided. It's yucky. It's not a good thing. The Bible says, no, sex is a gift from God. It is a good gift from God. It is a good thing and rightly handled produces good fruit. And I think this is where we get to, like, what are the benefits of waiting? Uh, I think we'll get to that in a quick second, but I think that's why God is just kind of giving us boundaries with it is because it's it's this powerful thing. It's not just this physical act. It's a spiritual soul act that is very, very powerful. And so we want, we want to be careful with sexuality and sex. Uh, we don't want to just uh, fleetingly uh, experience it without having the things around it that God gives us. So I think the first place we see it is, is just in that uh, Genesis 2, uh, a man will leave his father and mother be joined to his wife or cling to his wife, certain versions. This is a picture of covenant with his wife. And then it says, and become one flesh. And so the order that we see from the first concept of marriage, covenant, sex um, is in that order. And that is repeated throughout uh, the Old Testament multiple times, New Testament by Paul, by Jesus. Um, and then we see pictures of this all the way through. And so... Why is it wrong? Uh, well, firstly, it's wrong because God says it is. Uh, God gets to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. Um, and what he, what he is saying uh, is not that sex is evil, not that sex is wrong, uh, but that, that there is a, a, a rhythm to this, a timing to this, which really, really matters. And so, again, if you're a Christian, we want to trust God that his boundaries um, his instructions to us are not because he is not good, not because he is holding out on us, not because he is trying to harm us, but the exact opposite. That's the lie Adam and Eve believe in a garden. They don't trust God. They think God is holding out of them. And so therefore they uh, don't trust God and they go and do an act and then it goes bad for them and God had warned them. So it, it is a sense, and we want to trust God, we want to obey Him, that He has good boundaries for us. And I think if we go deeper, that's where we find that there are these benefits of waiting till you're married. Now, what are those benefits? Well, I think there's a number of them. Uh, one uh, I, I found um, that was helpful for me uh, was that by uh, intentionally, Carly and I intentionally trying to set boundaries and try to help ourselves resist the temptation of uh, crossing the line before it was the time, so to speak, was it actually built a, a muscle of self-control towards one another that once we became married would then be self-control towards another. What I mean by that is getting self-control before we were married help us to have self-control when we're married. And so when you uh, don't give time to building up that self-control muscle, so to speak, then it's not there when you get married which is why the statistics tell us that over 80% of people who cohabitate separate. So the, the, the culture has kind of gone the opposite way and said, well, this marriage thing doesn't work, this waiting before marriage thing doesn't work, so we're going to come up and do our own way. But the statistics are far worse. And those who cohabitate and then cohabitate, the statistics go worse again. 
And so there's a sense in which building that, the way I sometimes put it in premarital is it's like a rubber band that there's tension getting pushed on the outside and you're building a muscle so that when you come together, it's hard to pull you apart once you're together later. And so I think that is one of the great benefits um, of, of waiting is you build this strength, you build this resilience, you build this, uh, this rhythm of self-control that once you get married, that temptation is no longer there to the other person, but it becomes you're protecting yourself from the outside, from anything that might come and try and uh, come between you and your spouse in purity um, later on. And so I think that's a great benefit. Uh, I think it also helps. Uh, one of the, the great benefits is uh, you just don't bear children within an, an, an uncovenanted relationship uh, because you can't. Um, and so the sense of uh, sexual unity isn't just pleasure. While there is a great, you know, great part of uh, sexuality and being a gift is about pleasure, but it's also about multiplication and, and child rearing and having families. Um, and so the beauty of waiting means that there's no chance for us to have children that don't have both a mum and a dad um, that aren't born into a single family home. And, and if you are those families, uh, we're not criticizing you, but you will know that that's been very hard for you. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think there are a number of benefits, but I think that's probably one of the main ones. So I would encourage you, if you're not yet married, um, have people around you, have some accountability, build that, that muscle of self-control so that later on, if you do marry that person, one, you haven't kind of been around with other people now that you're coming with this person. There's a sense in this is the only person. Um, but also, you'll have self-control uh, once you're married. In previous generations, local church ministry was largely driven by women investing in their communities. Recently, there's been a cultural change of women pursuing a career. Is this part of God's design for the role of women? Really great question. I think there's a number of things in here that we can probably hit on. Um, what I would say is I think this, uh, there's been this cultural change of women pursuing a career. Let me just hit on this idea of pursuing a career. Um, this is really, really common, and not just common for women in our culture. This is common for men in our culture. And I think definitions matter here, degrees matter here. But um, I think there is a, a huge emphasis for us to pursue a career. And culturally, I think what that means is um, there's a materialism behind that. There's an identity behind that. There's a significance behind that. There's a security behind that, which is all without any faith in God. And I think that's a problem for both men and women. I think it's a problem uh, in general. I think if we are Christians, we are called to vocations. We are called to love and serve God in word and deed, in everything that we do. Um, so it depends on what we mean here by pursuing career, but the way I'm interpreting that is someone who's really going after something at the expense of other things. And so I think lots of people are Christians who are pursuing a career, both men and women. And they're doing that to find their significance, to find their identity, to have bigger houses, better cars, uh, more material goods. And it's all, you know, it's all in there as being a, a, a thing that is, is fine. But when we do it in that way, it's actually, it's, it's absent of any faith at all. It's absence of any security. It's not with our identity in Christ. Um, and so I think anyone... Um, should look at your vocation primarily through the lens of worshiping God and bringing value to God um, and honoring God with the good gifts that he has given you, the good desires and things that you enjoy to do. 
Um, so whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're a wife, husband, mother, father, whatever it is you do, I would encourage anyone who's listening to consider why you are doing what you are doing. Um, and if you are doing it for those reasons, I would say try and come back and, and bring faith back into those things because the issue I think we're getting uh, here in this question is that we've got a lot of women now who are pursuing career and because they're pursuing a career, they're no longer investing into communities and doing mission and maybe even raising children uh, because they're now out of the home um, pursuing this career to give themselves something. Um, and I would say, yeah, I, I think that is uh, a bit of an issue. But what I would also say is I think if we look historically, um, I think we see this in the Bible. I think we see examples of both. I think we see examples of uh, sometimes it's the husband who works alone and the, the, the wife slash mother is at home raising the children. Um, but we also have examples of women in the Bible who both raise uh, their young children and also uh, in business. I think you see this with the, the woman in Proverbs 31 who is always used as an esteemed godly example for women. Um, she is both a mum and a wife and those things she says to do very, very well. But she's also someone who is in business and has some sort of vocation where she is creating wealth. Um, that's in there. And it's not its not uh, the, the wife and the mother part is esteemed and that's seen as negative. It's actually all of these things are good. Um, so I think it can be, um, it can be fine for for a wife slash mum to also be working. Um, it's 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 a matter of working that out between that family home as to what is good, and is that to the neglect of something? Uh, I think that's a really important thing to think through. I think we see in Acts chapter sixteen with Lydia and the church of Philippi. She is a, a this this woman who. Uh, is a dealer in purple goods and she becomes a Christian her and a whole household uh, get baptized it doesn't really tell us about the man there the husband the father we don't really know is he in this picture uh, or not we're not really 100% sure but she becomes this particular person who then that the church at Philippi, uh, Philippi starts in her home she opens because she has a business because she is dealing in purple uh, she has money she has a home she then opens up a home to start and kick off this church plant um, we see women um, following Jesus early in his career, and they're playing a part in that. We don't know whether those women um, had children. Some of them seem to have. Some of them seem not to have. Um, so I think what we need to be careful of is a picture that says men work, um, dads work, husbands work, uh, women don't, wives don't, mums don't. Um, I think what we, what we do when we do that is we create a contrast um, of things which is not what the Bible portrays to us. Uh, the Bible certainly, um, we've talked about this through the series, certainly has put this weight of uh, responsibility on the husband slash father to provide in certain ways and to certain degrees to free up the wife slash mother so that she doesn't have to do those things to those same degrees. However, uh, some women can have great impact in the culture um, by yeah, having having a, a, a role, vocation. Um, is that affecting women investing in our communities? Yeah, it can do. Um, and there's a shift that has happened, I think, between pre-industrial age and post. Uh, pre-industrial age, we see that both uh, husband and wife, mother and father, both were working together often in the fields. 
Um, and it was, it was kind of this shared thing where they were doing certain roles, different roles, but they were kind of working together to provide. And post-industrial age, what we start to see is now men are actually leaving the community to go to these other urban centers and start to work. And so they actually were extracting themselves from the, the close community, the, the, um, the nearby community to actually start to travel to get to work. Um, and that started to really, really shift. And so uh, in that, what happened was typically it was the man doing that, the father doing that, not the, the mum. She was staying at home. And I think that's where we've moved into traditionalism, where we see is that that is how it should be to that exact science, to that exact degree. And I would say, no, I think you need to prayerfully consider what God is calling you to. We are all called to invest in our communities. We are all called to participate in the raising of children if God gives us children. Um, and you need to work that out between you as a family. And to the men, I would say men, um, don't neglect your role in such a way that it puts pressure on your wife, the mother, to have to go and pursue this career in order to provide. Um, step up where you can, work as hard as you can to free her so that she can do the things that God has called her to do. Great question though. Next question is similar. Where do you see media culture pushing man and wife in terms of their roles and responsibilities? What does a worldly man and wife look like and how does this differ from the biblical uh, model? Great question. I, I see a lot of things that are, that are happening uh, culturally. Um, I think we are living in, a, in an age where some of the biblical values of what it means to be both a man uh, or a husband and a, a, a woman slash wife um, are kind of mocked and despised. Um, and that's okay. Um, we're not supposed to have a monopoly necessarily. We live in a, in a culture that doesn't follow Jesus, that doesn't believe in the Bible. Um, and so uh, we don't have to expect our culture to affirm what we think the Bible affirms. Uh, we don't have to be jerks about stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think certainly media and culture, I think uh, uh, there's a shift that is really, uh, really happening where um, <laughs> it's a kind of weird thing. I think, say, first and second wave feminism, I think, did some really helpful, good stuff that lift uh, the value of, of dignity uh, on women in culture. Um, and equality came that I think was probably necessary. Um, however, third wave feminism is now probably taking that to extremes. And now what we're doing is we're pushing men down and we're saying that all men are toxic. Um, or we're, we're looking at the strength that men has, uh, God has given men uh, as being something that, um, you know, is in and of itself bad. And I don't think that's the case. I think God has created men uh, with a certain strength, with a certain size, um, and that is part of how he has made us. And the issue is not masculinity. The issue is sin. And sin uh, it comes out in multiple ways. We've said this throughout the series that there is uh, sin primarily is selfish aggression, selfish passivity. And so I think in many, many generations, there was lots of selfish aggression with men where there was dominance, domineering, control. Um, and now what we're starting to see is there's now selfish passivity. Men are now starting to become scared of actually stepping up in culture and society. Um, they're scared to um, play a role because they don't want to offend women. They don't want to um, disrespect women. And that's a good thing, but there's lots of that, I think, in culture, which is unhelpful. Um, and I think there's 
uh, a pressure on on women um, to be like a man, to <laughs> to have strength like a man, to uh, do the things that men do. Um, and so I feel like there is a clash culturally now where um, to to say that there is a distinction between a man and a woman, to, to even have the thought to say that a man typically, generally is stronger than a woman is offensive because our culture says, well, if you say I can't do something, be something, you're hitting at my identity and that offends me. Um, and I just... The Bible seems to be really, really clear that a man and a woman are designed and created differently for good reasons. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.